0: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions. And this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily. And today we are speaking with Rick Simon. After 33 years as a public school administrator and 15 as an adjunct professor for Stony Brook University and LIU Post in educational administration, Richard Simon believes that building and sustaining positive and nurturing relationships within your organization is the single most important work to create a culture that provides students and staff with a positive learning environment. Rick's priorities have always centered around being visible and present, even at the expense of getting the office work done and creating structures that engage the community and staff in lifetime learning and reflection. The notion of servant leadership has also played a big role in Rick's work as a school leader. As a high school principal in four different schools in three states, Over a 25-year span, Rick's crafted an approach that includes celebrating the best in students and staff, never losing sight of the core role of a school to educate the whole child, and the need to provide a safe and supportive environment. The most satisfying leadership experiences were in roles where Rick managed to find a way to teach a class as he served as a principal. This kept him connected to students, aware of the frustrations teachers experience, and engaged with curricular material that so often needed revision and adjustments to truly excite students. So welcome, Richard Simon. How are you?
1: Doing great. Nice to be here.
0: Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Ready to go. Awesome. Awesome. So, Richard, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now?
1: Sure. I knew early on in my college career as an undergraduate that I wanted to be a social studies teacher. And that came from an inspirational uh, teacher I had in high school. And so, when I got out of uh, my four year undergraduate experience, I was fortunate enough, even though it was the early 1970s and there weren't very many teaching jobs that a job had opened up at my old high school, and I ended up being asked to come back. It was a one-year part-time job that ended up becoming a full-time tenure-track job, and I spent six years teaching history and social studies uh, outside of Rochester, New York. Mm. And my experience there, Brighton is a really well-known, respected high school. It's a suburb of Rochester, a lot of University of Rochester, and at the time, Kodak and Xerox executives, kids there. And uh, a lot of great teachers, but not great leadership. I was kind of disappointed. I found that both at the building level and sometimes at the district level, I started saying to myself, you know, there's opportunities there. And I began to think about, you know, do I want to teach for an entire career or do I want to take the opportunity maybe to see about taking some of my experiences and skills and using them in a position that might have a greater impact on Mm -hmm. students? And I had the good fortune to be able to take a leave for a year and go to graduate school. I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which was a wonderful place. Got a chance to do an internship there as a housemaster, which is really the equivalent of an assistant principal at a public high school, and really said, this is what I want to do. I want to work in a building where uh, I would have an opportunity to impact not just uh, students, but also staff and teachers. And so by the time I was 30, I had my first administrative job. I was an assistant high school principal outside of Philadelphia for a few years. started looking for a principalship and got lucky and got one pretty quickly. So I was about 31 and had my first high school principalship. And I spent the next 25 years as a high school principal, did 10 years in New Jersey, and then came to Long Island and did 13 years as principal at Wheatley, which is the high school for the East Williston Public Schools in Nassau County. And then sort of the same notion got to me that, heck, you can do a lot at a building, but imagine what you could do at district leadership. Mm. And took the opportunity, uh, as much as I loved Wheatley, to look around a little bit and uh, got a job as an assistant superintendent for curriculum in Cold Spring Harbor, And that went very quickly because I applied for and was accepted into a grant program statewide for aspiring superintendents. And I decided that uh, I do much better when I'm in the leadership top position than in the middle position. I learned that as an assistant principal and as an assistant soup. As much as I liked them, I really wanted to be in the top position. And within a couple of years, I landed a superintendency. Uh, I was superintendent in the West Islip Public Schools, which are in Suffolk and reached a point, put over almost 40 years in public education, and decided it was time for me to retire. Retired a few years ago, that lasted all of about two
0: months, (laughs) and somebody... So you've been pretty successful up until now? I said... Just uh, an epic fail in retirement.
1: Retirement has been a total failure. I'm going to try it again in June. I'm not sure it'll work, but we'll try.
0: You're back in the school system. What are you doing now?
1: I'm teaching ninth grade history at Friends Academy, which is a private... Quaker School here on Long Island and it started as a leave replacement for a few months and that was four years ago and here I am in my fourth year now I'm teaching a full load of four classes and uh, I guess Not that can let you go they don't want to let me go but I told them I'm going to be done in June.
0: Listening to your journey you seem to be someone who's always wanting to influence on a bigger scale. You notice that leadership wasn't that great in
1: some of the situations I was in yeah
0: and so you wanted to make an impact there how important is that for you
1: I think that I felt that I had some skills and a vision that would translate to really good experiences for kids and for staff Mm -hmm. and what I discovered is it translates well on what I would call a smaller scale I think my favorite position was being a high school principal I did that for 25 years, and it was at a level where you could really see the impact very directly of your influence as a leader. My experience in district office at the end of my career, both as an assistant superintendent and as a superintendent, really uh, taught me both about myself, which is that I really thrive on working with kids, either directly as a teacher or with teachers who are directly working mm-hmm. with students. And it also taught me that when you get To that level of management, it's a real struggle to find the time to satisfy that urge you have within you because it is so political. It is so driven by finances and politics and policy and so little time to really get to know students and to some degree the teaching staff in a way that you really feel connected with them. I left the superintendency probably sooner than maybe people might feel would be appropriate, but I did very consciously knowing that I was not very happy professionally mm-hmm. in that role, that I didn't have the opportunity to really make the connections uh, that I wanted to, that really I thrive on.
0: Mm-hmm. So so making an impact on the students' lives, the teachers' lives, um, that's important to
1: you? That's really important, and because I think Having it's, that contact... And the contact, because, you know, impact, I think, is really the result of a good relationship with somebody. And it's not you necessarily doing something for somebody else, it's you enabling that person to do for themselves and to contribute in a really positive way to whatever their role is. And that I always felt was kind of an underlying philosophy I had that my job was sort of the steward, my job was to make the people who really are most important the day-to-day teachers have the support the freedom the encouragement the motivation to be as successful as possible and that to me was what really good leadership is and it definitely translated well at the building level where you could see it every day it wasn't that way so much when you got beyond that and so much of your time was sitting in meetings with other superintendents and with state officials and county officials and working through policy debates that you often didn't really see the direct impact of.
0: A lot of conversations.
1: Too many conversations and not enough chance to really work directly with with the, the most important people who are the kids.
0: So how would you describe your leadership style?
1: I'd like to believe that uh, my style was one of giving people who worked for me a lot of latitude, a lot of opportunity to grow, an opportunity to be themselves. Uh, I'd like to believe that I wasn't real prescriptive and demanding that everything had to be done a certain way. Um, Maybe a a story where I was on the other end of that as a young principal would illustrate my thinking. uh, had a pretty influential superintendent who hired me for my first principalship in New Jersey. Very bright guy, uh, still a good friend of mine, but also very much a micromanager. And in my first year, you know, when I'd first been hired, he had laid out for me a number of issues that he felt had to be addressed. And I went about addressing them. And then we sat down a few months into my first year, and he wasn't happy because there wasn't an immediate change. And he had some different ideas of how to bring about that change. And to say it got heated a few times would be an understatement. And it really was me saying, give me the opportunity and a reasonable amount of time to achieve what you want to see happen. Let me do it my way. I think it will work for me and for my building. And he was, I think, smart enough to say, okay, I will hold you accountable at the end of the year. This needs to have been addressed. But rather than me tell you how to do it, I will let you try it your way. And we both learned. He learned that that can work because we were successful. And in my view, by being able to do it the way I wanted to, that fit my style as a leader, I was able to move the building in a positive way and still address the individual problems that he had. So without going into all the details, it sort of taught me a lesson. There are many different ways to get to the same point. And I'd like to believe as a leader, my job is to free up people to be able to do it within some reasonable parameters in the way that works best for them. And whatever the tools are that they need, I try to find those and make them happen. Hire good people, Mm -hmm. give them uh, what they need to be successful, point them on their way, and then stand back and let it happen. And then know when there are times you got to step in, but you do that on an individual basis rather than reacting because a couple of people maybe aren't going the way it should be, you don't change it for everybody.
0: What I hear is that it does require trust, and yes. that's not an easy thing for some people.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Trust is one of the fundamental building blocks, long term, of creating a culture that is positive for students and for staff, and that was really sort of a lot of my own training, particularly at Harvard and some of the people i uh thinking I got exposed to there. It was about building a student-centered culture, a staff-centered culture, by respecting people, by working on relationships. Out of that came trust. And once trust is there, it gives you the freedom to know that people will give you the benefit of the doubt. And it's a two-way street because while I might be earning their trust, they're earning my trust. And it's about hearing them, listening to them recognizing you might not always have the answer, that they might have a better answer, and then acting on it when you are able to recognize that. So trust opens up that communication.
0: And you know what I appreciate about that story that you told about your boss micromanaging at first is that you confronted that. You stated what you needed, and he gave you that courtesy and that trust. He delivered. In other words, he chose to trust at that moment. Now, Rick, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why?
1: I'm not going to quote word for word, but I will tell you, I've always tried to read a lot about leadership and look for voices that resonate with me. And I think the voice that resonated very early in my career and I've never lost sight of is a woman named Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who's a sociologist Uh, She taught at Harvard. I think she was at Princeton for a while. And she wrote a really powerful book, at least for me, called The Good High School, which I think came out in either 1980 or 81. So it's Mm -hmm. been around a long time. And it was a sociological look at five very different high schools, but all within the context of their own environment considered good high schools. That's why it was called The Good High School. And she asked sort of the question, what do they have in common, given they are so different? Meaning, I think one was an elite prep school, like an Exeter or, you know, one of those uh, private schools where kids are paying a lot of money to go. One was a suburban top high school outside of Boston. One was a very large city school, part of the New York City system. And she had five of those schools, and she spent time in each and really richly, described sort of the culture and the life there. And the one thing she came away with in her book that she found in common of all five was they all had this sort of ethos of we're never good enough, we can always get better. Even though all five within their own context were viewed as really good high schools, nobody ever sat back on their laurels. Everybody said, yeah, that's nice, but you know what? We got work to do. And part of our work is always sort of Thinking through what we're doing, could we do it a different way that it would work for even more kids? And that notion of self reflection, institutional reflection, and using that as the driver for just ongoing growth and improvement. I know that in many of my interviews for early administrative jobs, I would bring that book along with me or bring a list of quotes from it. Uh, I still have it, it's one of the few I've kept. And it just had that message that it is not so much does it need to be a suburban school? Does it you know have to be a private school to be great? And I'll tell you, there was a column maybe a week ago by David Brooks, a Sunday in the New York Times, that almost was like Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot revisited. And he talked about why is it that some city schools, which most people say across the country aren't doing well, are doing really well, while a lot of others aren't. And his conclusion was, strong leadership at the principalship, building a culture where everybody is sort of centered on kids and doing things to improve. And I said, geez, there's Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot all over again, Mm -hmm. and we're, you know, what, uh, 35 years, 36 years later. So uh, I'd say Lightfoot, and then throughout my career, I was sort of going through my library this morning before we sat down, and I pulled out eight or nine books, and I sort of put them in order, and they go literally from Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot in around 1980 to one that came out last year, and it just seems like every few years there's an author who says something about leadership and schools that really resonates with me. I think any good leader finds a way to always be looking through different lenses about how to be an effective and quality leader, and I think you find a lot of it by looking at the people who study our work.
0: It seems like that's the type of leader that inspires you, those leaders who value growth. Yeah.
1: absolutely when you stop growing I would argue things begin to turn the wrong way mm-hmm. and growth is what makes it all a lot of fun even as a teacher and I think about those really great teachers who have taught the same subject for 30 years or 40 years it's because every time they teach it they're working to try to tweak it do it a little bit different do it a little bit better let's try this or maybe we'll do it this way that's what makes it interesting to them And if they're interested in it and engaged in it, their students will be. And I always felt as a principal, you could do the same thing in your building. You could make lifelong learning and always kind of saying, there's got to be some other ways we could do this, a part of the work that you're doing.
0: Now, you mentioned lifelong learning. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now?
1: (laughs) I'm learning. I'm not very good at retirement. Um, (laughs) No. I'll give you just a couple of examples to illustrate this. When I came to my principalship here on Nassau County at Wheatley, I was very fortunate to work my first few years for a superintendent who really believed in that concept of lifelong learning. So his sort of a thing was he ran something called a superintendent seminar every year. And any teacher could volunteer to be a part of that seminar and you would meet with him as a group, eight or 10 of us, every two weeks for you know, maybe a semester. And at the end of each session, you'd get an article that he had selected to read for the, two weeks from them, and then we would come have this open-ended discussion. And what was so interesting is most of the articles were not about education. They were philosophy, they were the business world, they were the political world, it would give us the insight, a different way to look at some of the issues we were facing. And I learned a lot from that. I learned that sometimes the best ideas that have made a difference in work and education don't come out of education. They come from other Absolutely. But that lifelong learning, I said, here's a guy who's near the end of his career as a superintendent and he would be so alive in those seminars as the facilitator. You could see that he had never really left being a teacher. He loved to ask those pointed questions and then somebody in the group would respond and he'd kind of challenge them and somebody else would jump in. And I felt we'd all come out of there talking about those issues Mm -hmm. and go back into our day-to-day routine but always be thinking about that. And I said, that's a great model. And I tried to do it where I could as a leader. Most of my administrative structures that I ran, we would begin each meeting with somebody being responsible for finding an article that we might spend the first 15 minutes talking about. So we would try to deal with something creative and of substance and then get into the administrative and the policy stuff that we'd have to talk about. And that's what I think makes for lifelong learning is always wanting to know more and how it then might enable one to be even better at what they're doing and have a more positive impact.
0: It sounds like also that you're the type of leader who likes to ignite learning because sometimes what can happen is we can see people we lead and they can be stuck somewhere. But a leader who ignites learning recognizes that
1: No question. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about something we did at Wheatley. I didn't think it would be as powerful as it turned out to be, I believe. You know, typically in a year as a principal, you get two or three days a year that are, quote, professional development days. Students don't come to school, teachers come, and you bring a speaker in. I always was a little skeptical of trying to learn something in a short amount of time. This was early in my tenure at Wheatley, and I was really trying to figure out how to sort of harness where we were maybe uh, look a little bit about where we'd been, but then figure out where do we want to go as a school. And then I had read a little idea from uh, Terry Deal, who was a professor at Harvard when I was there, and he's kind of a culture expert. And he had uh, described a workshop that I said, I could tweak a little bit and let me see if this works. So what I did is um, I took everybody on the staff out of the building for the day i convinced somehow my superintendent to give me a little bit of money and rent a room at a local hotel Wow,
0: you have a lot of influence
1: (laughs) (laughs) trust me the other principals weren't real happy when they heard i got to do this and the idea was i said we're going to spend the morning learning the history of wheatley we were almost 50 years old as a school so i divided the staff based on when they had started at Wheatley by decade and i had invited seven or eight retired teachers who I knew had been at Wheatley when it had started as a school in the late 50s and I said for the morning these groups are and I gave them giant poster paper so we're going to create a timeline and you're responsible each group for a different decade of the history of Wheatley and on that timeline I want you to think about what were sort of the seminal incidents that happened in your ten years that you know people always talk about and now, did you
0: have Google back
1: then? Didn't have Google, uh-huh. didn't have the internet. What I did is I brought a stack of old magazines where they could cut pictures out, and I brought a lot of markers, and we're talking, let's see, this would have been almost 25 years ago uh, that we did this when I first came to Wheatley. And what a morning, so they worked, and I sort of circulated, and then we gathered all for lunch, and each group got up and gave a presentation, and they held up the timeline, and that first group that got up you could see the reaction of some of the younger teachers who didn't know the history of the first 10 years of the school and went, that explains that. That's why they do that, or that's what they mean. So that was the morning. And when we were done around the room, we literally had a 50-year timeline. It survived for many years. We actually ended up mounting it under plexiglass on the wall of the school. And for years, people would go by, sort of held together, eventually Mm -hmm. fell apart. And then the idea was, okay, we've spent the morning visiting the history, looking at the themes that sort of cross over all. Where do we want to go? What are those things we want to improve? What are some lessons we've learned? And the afternoon was an activity where we mixed people up, now young and old together. What ideas do you have for what the next 10 years should look like? Whether we created some wonderful path, I don't know, but boy, did we create a lot of goodwill and cross communication between newer teachers and older teachers and boy those retired teachers who got a chance to come they were so empowered by even being asked to come be a part of this like you still remember who I am yeah you're one of the founding teachers you got to tell us what it was like that first year or second year what were some of the key decisions that were made so that to me was a much better use of professional development especially at a building level where you wanted to bring the building together and begin to get people to understand the history and use it to build for the future
0: well rick that was pretty powerful because what you did is you brought people together you had them learn or understand their past their present so that they can clearly pave a future exactly and i think that was brilliant oh, thanks thanks <laughs> Well done. Thank, a long time ago <laughs> and one of the, the things that you did too is how you valued those that were there the people that were retired the new teachers the older teachers and that speaks to who you are as a leader thanks thank you so much for that now rick what's the best advice you've ever received
1: i like the phrase seek first to understand i think the best advice is to first listen and try to understand whether it's a parent who's in your office upset about something, what's really going on, or a group of faculty, or a group of students, and listen, ask questions that clearly show you're aware of what they're, you know, trying to clarify in your mind before you jump in to try to solve a problem. And I learned often those problems that come to you, and that's a lot of what being a principal is about, solve themselves if you just give people that, chance to be heard. So many parents, and I learned the hard way sometimes because I like to think of myself as trying to solve problems and be creative and know all the answers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you can't know all the answers. And often what people most want is a chance to work through their ideas, their frustrations, their anger, and then maybe at the right time ask that question, well, what do you think would be the best way to resolve this? And I'll tell you, I was shocked a few times when they said, well, you know, I think this is what was good. We just talked about it. I mm-hmm. think you've heard me. Sounds like you understand. Let's just see where it goes. And they would walk out and I would go, geez, I didn't do anything. And they think I solved the problem. And I'm being a little, you know, glue about that. But that is a lesson I've tried to remember mm-hmm. because most leaders' instinct is they want to solve problems for people. Mm-hmm. They You know, people come in upset about, oh, I'll take care of that. I want to, yes, you don't like that, Will. Instead of saying, let's really see what's at the root of this. I think if you listen, when there are situations that you can't really change, at least they'll walk away feeling they got a fair hearing, they got a chance to really say what they needed to say. And that's when you can honestly say, look, we'll agree to disagree, because at least we've heard each other and we know what we disagree about. Hello, fellow educators. My name is Dr. Paul Gavoni and I am the Director of School Improvement at Positive Behavior Supports Corporation. After 20 years in education, it's been my experience that too many schools and classrooms are flooded with behavior issues that could have easily been prevented. As a result, achievement is negatively impacted and educators become stressed and leave. My colleague Anika Casa and I specialize in organizational behavior management, which is the science of human behavior as applied to organizations for improving performance. Simply put, if we want to bring out the best in our children, we must effectively bring out the best in adults. If you are interested in making a meaningful and sustainable change in your school or receiving a free and simple to use tool for diagnosing performance issues, please email me at pgavoni at teampbs.com. That's p as in Paul, G A V as in Victor O N I, at teampbs.com. I look forward to hearing from you. At the end of the day, it really comes down to only a couple of things. Most of all, it comes down to building relationships. Mm-hmm. And relationships is about, on your end as a leader, the willingness to say, I don't have all the answers, and I'm not perfect, and I will try to listen, and I will try to understand, and at the same time being willing to do the same for other people, to know that people don't all fit in little boxes, that somebody who's maybe on the surface experiencing an issue as an employee is really a sign that there's other stuff going on. And if you can get to the other stuff in a way that they feel trusting and comfortable about sharing that, then you can begin to say, okay, now let's see if we can figure out something that we can work out that will meet your concerns, but also respect the needs of the organization. I think I'm pretty good at building relationships with kids. I'm okay with adults, not quite as good as kids. (laughs)
0: You're a good connector. Thanks. Um, Now, Rick, what does it mean to have a good team, and how do you build and sustain one?
1: Well, I think one of the interesting things about being a school leader is you don't usually get to pick your team. I mean, most people who come in as principals or as superintendents inherit a pretty established and often inflexible teams. We don't have the freedom. I'm going to be careful here. I didn't want to step across into the political lines of today. But, you know, it's not like a cabinet where I can hire and fire at will.
0: I'm not sure how good that is either.
1: Exactly. But I think... It's first learning about your team. I think almost every job I've gotten, whether it was a principalship, the assistant superintendency or the superintendency, I was an outsider coming new to the district, unlike some people who work their way up within a system. And that was good in some respects uh, in that they didn't know me, I didn't know them. We kind of see each other freshly, but I didn't have the good fortune to know the history and to know where some of the minefields were. And so I had to figure out a way to very quickly get up to speed. And I think it forced me when I inherited a team, whether it was as a principal getting a team of department chairs and assistant principals, figuring out how do I get them to be on the same page and to trust me and I can trust them. And that goes back to investing the time. I would spend the first summer of each of these jobs inviting anybody to come in and spend an hour or two with me and recognize, I don't want to jump right into the job. I want to know who they are as a person. Um, there's a story in one of the most powerful books that has influenced me, Max Depree's book, Leadership is an Art. Uh, there's a story in here that Max Dupree, who was the CEO of Herman Miller, which obviously is not a college <laughs> or a high school, it's a high-end furniture company, One of the chapters is called The Millwright Died. And it's a story that Max Dupree tells uh, based on his grandfather's experience, who was the original, I think the original, either his father or grandfather, who was the original um, CEO of Herman Miller. And the millwright was the most important factory worker because the millwright had the responsibility of making sure the power was always there to run all the machines. And in those days, it wasn't electricity. And uh, the millwright dies. So his either father or grandfather, is invited to the funeral and goes to the wake. And the widow comes out, and she says, I'd like to read some beautiful poetry to sort of highlight my husband's life. And when she's done, the pre goes up and says, uh, that's beautiful poetry. Who wrote it? She says, my husband. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Was he a millwright or was he a poet? Mm. And then he sort of speaks in there about knowing who your staff are and knowing what they can bring, not just the expertise in whether it's teaching or whatever they're doing, but to find a way to tap in and allow them to be who they really want to be and to show their talents. I used to read that little chapter to all of my first year teachers in new teacher orientation Mm -hmm. to sort of say, if you've got a talent, if you've got something you're really interested in that you think might help us Work together. Let's talk about it. Let's know about it. Let's use it. And I think, you know, that story, he's sort of saying, I wish I had known that that millwright was also a poet because he could have done something with the staff. And that's a lesson I never forgot. I wanted to really build that. So, with a team, you build that camaraderie by really knowing everything about your team and who can bring what to the table.
0: I love that. And once again, it just shows how you value those around you. And a good leader does that. So Rick, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life?
1: That's a great question. I've had a lot. One of my struggles as a principal, and I was a principal for 25 years, was I did not want to give up that opportunity to teach kids. So I worked really hard in all four of the high schools that I was principal of to try to find ways to keep that going. I think I was one of the few principals who actually did occasionally teach a class, and by that I mean I taught for a semester, or, you know, I would teach third period every day, and it was my class for the semester. Wasn't always easy. There were districts in which the teachers union was opposed to that. They didn't want administrators teaching, and I would always sort of say, but isn't that really one of the roles of the principal, to be the chief teacher of the school? It would be both personally gratifying and satisfying to me, and also an opportunity to be a role model. And one way or another, I figured out how to satisfy that, but that was always a challenge. And I think when I got the chance to start teaching as an adjunct for Stony Brook, that really rounded things out. I was able then to sort of satisfy now teaching adults in a classroom setting who wanted to become administrators. So, that on sort of a personal level was always a challenge because here I am at the end of my career, back teaching four ninth grade history (laughs) classes a day. Right, right. I think a challenge for me has always been delivering bad news, telling somebody we like you, but we don't love you enough to, whether it's a teacher to recommend tenure or somebody who you just were going in different directions. Mm -hmm. It's easier if the person has really done something egregious. But that's rare that somebody really does something egregious. And then it's not so difficult to say goodbye. Everybody would be in agreement. The tougher ones are where they're okay, but they're not at a level that you really think long-term is going to move the organization ahead. And I don't know how else to describe it, but even with some people I would say, you know, it's not the right fit. Or I really want an A. Or an A plus teacher, and you're a B teacher. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just meaning that maybe this is not the right setting for you. That was always hard. It was hard to say it, it was hard for them to understand it. And people around you have a tough time understanding it because they might on the outside say, This is a good staff member, they do their job. And if they were to confront you, and you were able to really talk about things, which you aren't because personnel issues don't get talked about. But if you could, you'd sort of say to them, it's what your gut tells you. It's what is going to be best in the long run for the organization and for the kids who they work with. And it doesn't mean that by not recommending tenure or deciding that you're not going to invite them back that they're bad. Mm -hmm. It just means that we might do better. And the person who really... um, crystallized that uh, of the writers I've read was Jim Collins in Good to Great, where he talked about get the right people on the bus and get the people who shouldn't be on the bus off the bus. And I would argue in the corporate world, in the business world, that's somewhat easier than in the education world where tenure can be at times, maybe not in reality, but certainly in most people's minds, a barrier to being able to do that, especially if you come in from the outside.
0: I'd be concerned if it didn't bother you. But, you know, sometimes we do have to make those tough choices as leaders. But I love that your heart is such that it's still hard yeah, and it bothers you. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes?
1: I would say of all the positions I had, being the principal at Wheatley was the most satisfying job I had. And I think the success that I would point to was... Not anything I particularly did, per se, but that I inherited a school with incredibly talented teachers and a culture that really valued intellectual discussion and discourse and respected disagreement. And I tried very hard to preserve that for as long as I could. And I like to believe that those 13 years I spent at Wheatley were years in which people were able to grow, were able to flourish, where the school wasn't afraid to confront some of the issues and questions. And if I had to say anything, that would be, to me, my greatest accomplishment. Not so much what I did, but what I enabled others to do. And I'd like to believe that the fact that I recognized that I got such a gem when I came Mm -hmm. and I worked really hard not to do anything to take away from that. And there were times I had to be the protector. I had to go to forces beyond the building to sort of protect what we had in the building and then there were other times I had to kind of remind people in the building that that is not the way we do things here Mm -hmm. you know we need to not lose sight of what has gotten us here and let's try to get back on the track and I think I did a a reasonably good job in doing that in preserving the culture
0: Wonderful. So preserving the culture is really important, but what would you tell a new teacher who's discouraged about a culture that's dysfunctional or not working?
1: So the question would be, is the culture that's not working the culture in their classroom or in their building? And the way you ask the question, I think it would be more the teacher who, in their own classroom, is able to do to a certain extent what they want, but is maybe working in a building or a district where some people might call it a toxic culture or a negative culture.
0: it could be a teacher. It could be an administrator.
1: I'm a pragmatist. I would say you do everything you can to assert in an appropriate way what you think needs to happen to try to move things toward the culture that you want to see. But I also think there comes a time where you have to say, you know what, this isn't working for me. This is maybe not where I'm going to be able to long-term be comfortable and be willing to go and say, I'm gonna go look for a different culture, for a place that maybe I will be able to feel more comfortable, more supported. There were times where I made decisions about changing schools and leadership positions. Some motivated to move up, but the fact that I had four different high school principalships shows you that, in some of them, you know, I recognized I've gone either as far as I can go in terms of growing it's time to make a change, or maybe it's better for whatever reason for me to move into a a different place. Mm. Being a really good educator is a really tough job. It's much harder than most people on the outside realize. There's the old sort of, oh, you have two months off in the summer and you're done at three o'clock. And I like to say, no way. If you are doing really good work as a teacher, if you're working hard as an administrator, you're working way beyond a 40-hour week, and you got to love it. It's to, a
0: passion project. It's yeah.
1: got to be a passion, and I think that does account for the fact that somewhere around 50% of new teachers don't last more than three or four years if they last that long. Even when you are in a great culture, it can suck the life out of you if you let it, or it can be the most rewarding great career anyone can have, but it's recognizing it is Hard, passionate work, but if you put the energy in, the time in, you get so much back from it, you know, I think as a person. It's a challenge today. I think it's a much tougher business to get into today and to feel comfortable because it's become so driven by the accountability movement. The bureaucracy is overwhelming. I talked to building level administrators today who just can't do everything they want me to do from the state level, from the district level. It's not realistic. I don't have the time to build the relationships. And I see that. So it's harder today. And I give them even more credit, those who Mm -hmm. stick with it and become really effective. Uh, It was easier in some ways. But then then again, life was a little simpler too. Mm -hmm.
0: Richard, you've been in a lot of leadership positions. How important is it to have a coach or a mentor?
1: Really important. You need at least a few people who you can trust enough to go to and sort of take the game face off and say, boy, I think I messed this up. you got to help me sort this out. Or, boy, I'm discouraged. What can you tell me? They're really important. And I think that a good leader seeks out and finds people who can play that role for them. And I was very lucky. I mean, I think back over my life and, you know, I had that 10th grade history teacher who me on the path to becoming an educator. Then I got hired at the teaching job in history, and one of the administrators kind of took me under his wing and gave me a lot of encouragement, and that led me to go into administration. And that first superintendent, who we sort of butted heads that first year, became a real source of support, and to this day is kind of a person I view as a mentor. So part of it is, on your end, knowing who to go to and trusting. And i like to believe that I have tried to play that role in this last half of my career with you know some of the teachers who I've taught in the Stony Brook and the LIU programs who've gone on to go into administration. But really important role. You know, I know New York at one point decided it was important enough for new teachers that they mandate that they get a, a trained mentor. And that, I think, is still in place in the state. And that's great. But again, the way they went about it, sort of took away from sometimes sort of put people together who didn't belong, good intentions, but it didn't work. It's a critical piece. We all need them. We all need coaches. Here's the example I would give. The greatest athletes at Tiger Woods in golf, you know, a great tennis player, a great baseball player, they all have coaches all the way through their career. It's not like suddenly you're a professional and you're so great. If anything, those are the ones who have the coaches and go to the coach every day and yet we believe you get that certificate as a teacher or that certificate as a principal you're done you know everything We've arrived. just the opposite right. you've just begun right. and those districts that are smart enough to bring back some of the retired people who might be willing to work a day a week or even sometimes do it gratis if they just asked and say would you come in and work? You know, maybe is there somebody here you'd want to work with? We've got some people who could probably use, you know, a wise, independent person. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, I would push it even a little bit further. What we do is so important. I um, mean, it behooves us to look for mentors. If I'm leading and I want to lead well then I need to take that responsibility and look for a mentor or a coach, even if my school doesn't supply that or doesn't, you know. Exactly, because
1: you know. in the corporate world, my understanding is that there are often resources and an expectation that when you get into the top leadership positions, you do seek out, and that's very legitimate. I think in education, some people almost view it like a sign of weakness, and if anything, it should, sign, yeah, it should be a sign of strength. Absolutely. One piece of advice I got early on from this fellow who was an assistant superintendent when I was a teacher thinking about going in he said now understand Rick each step up is going to get lonelier and you've got to find a way to have the person to go talk with and he told me a story that he had a temper and there was another assistant superintendent who was a little calmer and they learned to work together sort of mentor each other and they were working in a building where it was an old school that had uh, you know the enrollment had gone down so they didn't have full walls so this guy would get into it with a teacher and there'd be some loud voices and then he'd leave and then he'd say I'd go next door (laughs) and go to the other guy and say now what could I have done so I wouldn't fall into that trap and that was sort of informal mentoring and uh, you're right.
0: That's extremely important in education. So we have touched on this a little bit if there were something you could change in education what would that be?
1: I wish society as a whole really valued teachers at a level that they should be Doctors, as a group, I think, tend to be highly respected. Scientists, lawyers, to a certain extent, not as much. But all of them, because people sort of say, oh, they have all this education and they provide this service. And yet, when you talk about teachers sometimes, it's like, oh, they have such an easy job. You know, they're done early in the afternoon. If people viewed the profession differently, it would attract Better candidates. And that's where you see those people who initially maybe chose to become a lawyer, become a doctor, become a stockbroker, and found that world not so wonderful, and then come to teaching. And you say Boy, I wish at the beginning we would have had them. So if I could change anything, I would change this society view, particularly in our country, of teachers more as sort of factory workers. I don't know how else to say it. They sort of see them more like that than they would as true, high powered, creative professionals where when I read about some other countries, like some of the Scandinavian countries, some of the European countries, Japan to some extent, where teachers are really valued in society, both their work conditions, their salaries, their training reflect that. Where here, it's more like, okay, you're done, you got your certificate, now you go teach for 40 years. and.
0: It's intense because when we really think about and reflect on what we do, we really influence the world and the future.
1: No question. Everybody wants help making sense of their world. Parents try to do that, and they're very important, but it's also emotionally very connected. Sometimes that's hard. But teachers are in a unique position to help kids sort the world out in a reasonable and fair way, and that's really important today because we do live in a complex, somewhat chaotic, World and I worry about where are we going if we don't help the future and I am so excited about some of the outcome out of this tragedy in Florida in Parkland to see young people taking the lead I hope it doesn't fizzle out I hope that they recognize that their voices do matter and that gives me some hope that the test will be can they have the patience on one hand to work with the system but on the other hand create enough of a voice and pressure to force the system to move a little bit more than it is now whether it's on this issue or any other
0: and then the onus falls on us to teach leadership skills right it's not something that's taught across the board so thank you so much for that now rick we talked a little (laughs) bit about some of the books but what have you read that our listeners should read and why well, <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll tell you this. My favorite assignment I give in my graduate class, and I get a lot of feedback on this, is I ask my students to find a book on leadership, preferably not an education book. Read it, cover to cover, write a review of it, but most of all, write about you know, what does it mean to them. And I'll give you a couple examples. I had a cohort of teachers I was teaching in Scarsdale back a few years ago for a LIU, and I put this assignment out, and I gave a list of possible books, but I said, you can come up with anything. And I had come across a book that somebody had recommended to me called First In and Last Out. Mm-hmm. It's about the culture of the New York City Fire Department, which is about as far from education. And I had about three of the teachers was, oh, my gosh, a book I can actually read and discuss with my husband because their spouses were FDNY. But they came back saying much more than that. Some of the practices within the culture of a completely different organization make a lot of sense and have implications for what we do in education. So that's why I think it's not just reading, but it's reading outside of the box, so to speak. But that being said, I also always entice them by saying... There are a lot of good short books out there. you know. they are looking at that one. And I happen to have, this past year, I became aware of it because I read actually a little review of it in uh, my alumni magazine from Harvard. There's a little book called Wait, What? And Life's Other Essential Questions by James Ryan. And at the time he wrote the book, he was the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. And this came from a talk he gave at commencement. And it was one of these talks maybe six, seven years ago that went viral. Somebody recorded it. They put it out on YouTube, and people said, oh, it's got great ideas. You should turn this into a book. So he turned it into a book, and it's this little 130-page book with big print. Um, and he sort of says it's about asking the right question, not about necessarily having the answer. Oh. And he, he has these four or five questions that if you as a leader – always sort of keep in your back pocket when that dialogue and discussion gets a little heated you kind of can go to these questions and they create this opportunity for people to take a step back and say i hadn't thought of it that way or well what do you mean like the title wait what is that question you ask when somebody has just said something you totally don't agree with but instead of telling them you don't agree with it you say wait, what did you just say? Could you tell me that again, explain that? But not with the tone of voice that I'm being, but, but with a sort of a neutral voice. And that keeps the discussion going. And sometimes it's a way to reframe it so that maybe instead of coming away, you know, having gone opposite ways, you find a way to come together. And just that idea of the questions. Another one I love is, I wonder and dot, dot, dot. I was thinking about this with gun control. I heard the other day that we'll never... Resolve this because the sides are so far apart. But somebody needs to say, well, I wonder if we could just try this instead of trying to solve it all at once. And there's a little bit of that. Florida, I give them credit. They raised the age to 21. They didn't try to do everything else at once. So, yeah. i
0: got to get that book because I'm all about questions. I <laughs> well, I, I
1: highly recommend it.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Now, sure. Rick, even in your retirement, you have a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> so what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind?
1: To settle or to set? S- either. As I told you, I mean, I've, quote, retired from public education, but I'm teaching full-time this year as a ninth-grade history teacher at a private school here on Long Island and gets my day going is knowing I got to face 57 ninth graders and I better have a good lesson plan and a good way to get them engaged to keep me going. And if I can get through that each day, I've accomplished a lot. In a way, I don't know if I'll ever truly retire. I'm not
0: surprised.
1: (laughs) I'll hopefully continue to teach as an adjunct, which is a much more manageable schedule you know, once or twice a week for three or four hours in the evening teaching. I want to be able to give back. I mean, I look forward to trying to say, I think I have some ideas and an approach that people could benefit from. And I also know that I still can connect and have a positive impact on young people.
0: Well, Rick, we need you. Oh, thanks. So you can't retire. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, I've come across a lot of really great leaders, and most of them, Are an epic fail at retirement maybe
1: i should write a book do a little research on the failures (laughs) of retirement Uh,
0: so tell us a little bit about balance because that's something that is really difficult as a leader in education what advice could you give us about maintaining balance it's
1: a great question and i actually addressed that pretty directly in my graduate classes because I sort of say sometimes I think I'm the best person to convince people not to be administrators when I tell all my stories of the late nights and whatever, but I also say to them you have to be creative in finding a way to have balance in your life. So I give them practical strategies. I say, you take a mini vacation in the middle of the day. And I say, what are you talking about? I said, look, when I was a superintendent and I knew I had a board meeting that would keep me there till midnight, and I wasn't going to go home in the afternoon. It's okay to shut the door for an hour, turn the phone off, put some nice music on and shut your eyes. And they was like, you, you would take a nap? And I'd say, yeah, sometimes you got to do that. You have to pace yourself. From a psychological point of view, you've got to figure out ways to disconnect. Physically, you've got to stay in shape, find ways to stay active. I think the worst thing you can do is sit at your desk as an administrator hour after hour. The other thing I loved was the idea that some people see your family and your job have to be separate. I used to try to find ways to connect them. So, for instance, as a principal, I wanted my daughter and wife to come to things at the schools you know I knew I had to go to a play on a weekend I'd say to my daughter bring some of your friends you don't have to sit with me you don't even have to acknowledge who I am but at least I know where you are and you're doing something and a couple of her birthdays we actually had her friends come and their event was they went to go see the high school musical and loved it and you know had a little party in a room and the difference was here I'm doing my job I'm there I'm supervising I'm being present but I'm also engaging my family in the school and the life of that, so.
0: You're modeling what it is to have balance in your life and people see what's important to you.
1: No question. This is maybe a practical, an example of balance. I know that almost all faculty meetings, especially in high schools, are always after school. And if you talk about when are people at the lowest ebb of energy, it's from that three to five o'clock time All of us can tell stories who've ever worked in schools with after-school faculty meetings of how wonderful they are, and people falling asleep, or trying to read the paper, doing everything but. And I had this crazy idea of what if we could start school late once in a while and bring everybody in at 7.30, have a nice breakfast, and have our one or two-hour meeting there. And we were able to do that a little bit at Wheatley. And that, to me, was providing a little balance. It was saying... You know, I know at 3 o'clock the last thing you want to do is listen to an administrator talk for an hour. Once in a while we have to do it, Uh, maybe for safety or security reasons, go over these plans, whatever it might be. But where you can find a way to, within the job, also give them some balance. Have some fun. And ask, I wonder if... I remember asking the union once, I wonder if we skipped a meeting this month, could I show a two-hour movie next month and we stay an extra hour and I'll have popcorn and soda and it will be fun? And they looked at me like, yeah, I guess so. You you know, for that that seems reasonable. And everybody loved it cuz we, you know, we had a month December when everybody was busy, we didn't have a meeting, and then in January, I'd had an inspirational movie, something that might be fun for a faculty to watch together, and we did it and we it was fun. A
0: brand new year. And you're right,
1: it was that question. I wonder if we could try this. Nobody's thought of it before or even asked about
0: it, and they said, "Yeah, let's do it." Let's do it. Great. Now, if you were to go back in time, What advice would you give the younger you about leadership?
1: Listen more, be a little more patient, and maybe not be so quick to want to move up the ladder. (laughs) And there might have been something nice about staying a particular place for a really long time. I mean, I think 13 years at Wheatley was a good run. I do look at other people who maybe put 30, 40 years in one place. I particularly uh, respect them when they're able to come away still positive, still Mm -hmm. doing good things. Great.
0: Thank you. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed?
1: I think I learned the most in my career by watching other people and what they did, both good and bad, and being aware of that. And then taking the good and making it part of mine. And I'll just give you one example to close, because I love talking about this guy. When I got my first administrative job I was an assistant principal at a high school outside of Philadelphia and the principal was a fellow named Earl Nor who is now deceased and Earl was the old style principal coat and tie every day very formal you always called him Mr Nor and I remember once he hired me in the first few weeks of school and we're walking down the hall one day nobody's around it's just the two of us and there's a couple of pieces of paper mm-hmm. and he stopped and picked every one of them up now I had always thought well okay so if people are around watching you you want to set that But then I knew that it wasn't just for show, that that was who he was. And this was his building. Mm. And to this day, I walk through wherever I am, and I will see, like, I'll say, how could that person have walked by that who works here? And why didn't they stop and address it? So I learned a lot of lessons by watching people and seeing what they did and how people responded to it. And uh, I tried to take the really good lessons and make them part of my own work.
0: And imitate the good and learn from the bad. <laughs> learn what
1: not to do in some cases.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, Rick, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to right. our listeners. It's been so much fun. Well,
1: thanks for your questions. They really got me thinking about a lot of things. And uh, I hope listeners will take one or two ideas away and uh, make use of them.
0: We don't retire. We need- <laughs> thanks. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message.